we're thankful for our Savior who will come to reign. Lord, we look at ourselves and our situation and we do hate all of our sin and adore only Him. Help us to adore Him more. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to the first class of the final series of classes in our uh, spiritual success uh, study that has gone on for, I guess, just about six years. Um, This is a class on money, on wealth, so this will be the first of five-week study on money. And the purpose of our time together will be to help us better understand God's intention for how we use our money and possessions. And at the end, we'll take up an offering. That was a joke. Okay. Um, see how see how you're agreeing with the principles. I was thinking about ending like that. Okay. Do you agree with everything I say? All right. Let's take an offering. But that would be uh, that would be an improper way to to uh, collect money. I think. Now, there's a great amount of uh, Christian liberty on this topic, so we're not going to be getting into the specific details of anyone's budget or asset allocation, but we will discuss general biblical principles on money and possessions. So turn to the the back of your handout, and you'll find the topics that that, uh, we intend to go through over the next five weeks. God's purpose for wealth uh, will be this first week, and then next week, the grace of giving to the church. And then week three, spending and budgeting. Week four, debt and saving. And then week five, developing a proper heart that values money properly. So um, next week, I, I intended this morning to have a few books to recommend here. I, I don't have them with me, so I'll try to bring those for you next week. Uh, some books on money that have helped me, and uh, I'll make sure that I have some in the in the back bookcase there for you to take a look at and and if you'd like to borrow, borrow them, you're welcome to as well. Well, let's begin by looking at Matthew chapter 25 because we're going to use this parable as a springboard for our understanding of our position within this universe, within God's universe, and, and uh, God's creation of wealth. Man, it feels so quiet in here today, doesn't it? It's kind of nice not having the air condition blowing in the back of my head. Yeah. So I'll be able to hear you well. That's that's uh, been the problem. I think I, I hopefully you you have been able to hear me, but I I can't hear you when you you have a question. All right. So Matthew chapter 25, and uh, a, a parable that's not unfamiliar to you, but let's just um, benefit from reading it together, beginning in verse 14. Jesus says, "For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves." and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted the two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. 
His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. And I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow, and I gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here in Matthew 25, Jesus tells a parable of a master who went on a journey and entrusted various amounts of money. Okay, so talent here, not not abilities. It's actual money. Um, It was a weight of money, in fact. The first received five talents, the second two talents, and the third one talent. And upon receive, uh, returning from his journey, the master called all of them to give an accounting for what they had done while he was away. And, of course, the first two servants put their money away and doubled it, and the master commended them for their faithfulness and called them good and granted them more responsibility and, um, and allowed them to share in his happiness. But the third servant was lazy and wicked, and hid the money in the hole in a hole in the ground, and the master rebuked him, took away his money, threw him out of his house. Well, this parable serves as a, a a way for us to think about money and worldly possessions, and we can just call that wealth. That's what we'll be calling it during this class. So we're going to use the parable as an outline as we consider the master and the servants and the stewardship that we have been given. So first, the master. Now, it's dangerous to assume that everything in this parable stands for something else, like an allegory. Okay, you're familiar with Pilgrim's Progress. You have everything in the story. Uh, every single detail has, points to something, and um, that's, that's an allegory. And we have to be careful about making an allegorical interpretation of Scripture where there is not one. Um, and in this case, we have to understand the points of comparison that Jesus intended. Don't go beyond what he intended uh, with the points of comparison. But I think the first one that we have to agree uh, with is this first point of comparison is that the master is God. Why is that? Well, God is over everything. And a proper understanding of wealth begins with God and his relationship to creation. So first of all, God owns everything. God owns everything. He is the owner of all worldly wealth. He is the owner because He created it all. So let me just have a couple volunteers to read for me. Bill, uh, Job 41.11. Bob, Psalm 24.1 and 2. Jennifer, 1 Timothy 4.3 through 5. Evan, Genesis 1.28 to 30. Mike, 1 Samuel 2.7. Couple more. Greta, First Chronicles twenty nine, twelve and sixteen, and then one more. Can't volunteer anybody else. Mike, 
1 Corinthians 4, 7. Yeah, there at the bottom here, 1 Chronicles 29, 12, and 16 on the front page. Yep. So, all right, so I'll get to those in just a second. But what we want to see is that God owns everything and that God gives people their wealth. So first, God owns everything. He is the owner of all worldly wealth. He has he is the owner because He created it all. We're not going to read through Genesis 1, but that's the point there, that God is the creator of all things. And that, that means that He has rightful claim on all that He's created. So let, let's listen to Psalm 24, 1 and 2. Okay, so as much as nations like to claim territory, say that it's ours, and even we, we have a deed for our property, right, that we own. Um, as much as we like to do that, uh, ultimately it belongs to whom? It belongs to God. It, it is the Lord's. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. He founded it. He established it. On the flip side, God's ownership also means that He doesn't own His, uh, that He doesn't owe us anything. Listen to Job 41.11. He doesn't owe us anything. Okay? So, do we have a claim on anything in this universe? Do we have a claim that, God, somehow you owe me something because I've done something for you? Here, God uh, God uh, goes against that. I think this is God speaking here in Job 41. Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. So, he doesn't need the wealth of his creation, but it's all his to do with with whatever he pleases. So, when God created everything in Genesis 1, he called it good, and so he assigned value to even the wealth of his creation. And... um, of course, sin entered into the world and destroyed the goodness of the wealth. Uh, it, it marred it in some way, but it didn't destroy it. I mean, listen to 1 Timothy 4, 5. This is following the fall. Listen how how it's described. So, verse 5 says, Everything that God created is good and is not to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. So, uh, all the, the pleasures of this world are not inherently evil. They're evil when they're done for the wrong purposes or they're done at the wrong times or the, for, the wrong, uh, for, for the wrong glory. The, the wrong glory is being ascribed to it. But, but everything is good. That's including wealth. In fact, the enjoyment of wealth can bring glory to God. Here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, I don't think anybody has this, so I'll read it. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So here we see that God has put in 1 Timothy 6, okay, the rich in this present world, don't be arrogant, but recognize uh, that you need to put your hope in God who richly gives us everything for our enjoyment, including, I would say, even wealth is given for our enjoyment. 
God gives us wealth for our enjoyment. That should not ultimately, obviously, be our hope. And we can we can go too far in enjoying our wealth. But but in general, um, uh, done rightly, wealth can be used for our enjoyment. Some Christians actually promote the idea of living in poverty and following an ascetic lifestyle. Ascetic lifestyle is like the monkish type lifestyle where we're going to remove ourselves from all the pleasures of this world. We're not going to have any of that um, because somehow we're more spiritual when we're away from the wealth of this world. You know, that's the big problem in this world is wealth. Well, no, the big problem in this world is greed. That's the problem. I mean, that's one of the big problems, not the main problem. The biggest problem is unbelief. But, but, um, but uh, certainly we should understand the principle of self-denial when it comes to wealth, but there's nothing inherently uh, evil about wealth. And so there's nothing inherently good about asceticism, which is the, the setting ourselves apart from all that, you know, that is, that is in this world, that we somehow have to live a simpler lifestyle um, in order to be pleasing to God. That's not true. There are many rich people who are described in the Scriptures who are pleasing to God. Um, the first one that comes to mind for me is Joseph, and then the second is David. Um, if I think, just think chronologically, there's several more. Um, you have uh, Philemon and um, others in the New Testament as well. So there's nothing inherently wrong with being wealthy. We just can't put our hope, our ultimate hope in riches. We can t- even take enjoyment from the wealth that God gives to us. So bottom line is God owns everything. He owes us nothing. And all that He made is good, including wealth. And so the secret of managing money well is is um, is to submit to how God wants it to be used. So first, God owns everything. Secondly, God gives people their wealth. If God owns all the world's wealth, then this means that He's He's also the one that gives us our wealth. Listen to Genesis one, twenty-eight to thirty. So here it's not talking specifically about money, but again, wealth includes both money and possession. So he's giving basically Adam and Eve the possessions of all the earth. Here it belongs to you now. I'm giving you ownership over it, or not ownership, but management over it. And um, so it comes from God. And that's similar to what we saw with the Master here in Matthew chapter 25 who gave to his servants uh, these talents. Listen to 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Mike. So the illustration I've used before is is like when we're a child with our father and we take something from his hand, you know, some coins or something he has in one hand, and we put it in his other hand. You know, it's it's the idea of um, our father is the one who owns it all, and yet we can somehow as a child like boast as if we own it. Like we don't own it, we just took it from his other hand and put it in in in, in the other one. So that's not 
not accurate to think of it as ours. God gives us the wealth. We don't own it. Uh, so how can we boast as if we, re- if, if we did not receive it? Everything that we have, our family, our education, our spiritual gifts, our job, our church, all come from God and all belong to God. King David, King David recognized this. The Israelites uh, gave things that they personally owned to help build the temple. And here's what David prays in First Chronicles 29, 12, and 16. That, that picture that I was just using earlier. It's all of it comes through your hand, and here I'm giving it back to you. It's for your temple as they're getting ready to build it. Notice also the master gave different amounts to each of his servants. He didn't give all of the servants the same amount, did he? And so, uh, yes, it's true that the wealthy in the church are supposed to help those who are poor in the church, First John 3.17. But it would be wrong for us to conclude then that God thinks that there should be an inequality or, or, or that inequality with wealth would be a bad thing. It, it, it does not mean that God demands inequality of wealth across the board. Okay, So we come to church, okay, let, let's put out our salaries all because we need to, to make it common among everyone. No? Listen to 1 Samuel 2.7. Alright, so the Lord's the one who gives poverty to one and 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 wealth to the other. And the the important thing is not how much we have. Okay? God gives different amounts to different people. It's not about how much we have. The the important thing is how we use what we have. Alright? Anyone uh volunteer for a verse and didn't read it yet? I'm not sure if I skipped over anybody. Okay. Okay, good. Might have a few more here. All right, any questions on God being the master? He owns it all. He's given everything that we have to us. All right, next, the servants. So if God's the master in the parable, who would the servants be? The servants would be us. If God owns everything, then how should we view that wealth that we possess? And that's what we'll talk about um, at the end, which is we should be proper stewards of it. We should be faithful stewards of it. So, first thing that we want to see here is that we don't own what we own. Okay, and all that we will be discussing today, the most difficult idea to wrap our heads around, is the understanding that we don't own what we own. So, the car that you just paid off last month, it's not yours. The diploma on your wall, the children in your house, the money in your bank account, not yours, not yours, not yours. You see, in our sinful nature, we don't like to admit this. Instead, we're more inclined to say, I earned it, and so it's mine. Don't tell me what to do with it. I own it. Right? Isn't that how it works with, with kids and their toys? Right? It's mine. I can determine who gets to play with it and who doesn't. That's how we are as adults as well with our possessions as well. Uh, also, we we tend to say, hey, it's mine. I earned it. 
I bought it with my money. I can determine how I will use it. But if we agree with Scripture, we have to go back to that first point, which is that everything belongs to God. Everything in the earth, God says, is mine. See, He has the right to say that, doesn't He? Because He actually does own it. Psalm 24, 1 and 2. Everything in the earth is mine. I can determine how it's going to be used. But we don't have that right because we're not the owner. We're simply stewards of it. And this is a big reason why people don't want to follow God and why the rich young ruler went away sad in Luke 18. It's because they don't want to submit their wealth or their lives to God's ruler, rulership or lordship, right? When we realize that our wealth isn't ours but God's, it, it, it actually relieves us of a huge burden of how to manage and, and really a burden that we were never meant to carry. right? I, I have all these things. I have to make sure that they're properly being used. And yet when we recognize that they all belong to God, it actually relieves us of that burden of saying, you know what? These are mine. I have to, I have to use them in a, in a selfish way. It actually frees us to be generous. In his book, Desiring God, John Piper gives an illustration about someone who comes into an art museum empty-handed. And as he walks into the room, he appreciates some of the, the uh, artwork on the walls, and he starts taking them, puts them under his arms. And when he's asked, what are you doing? He replies, I'm becoming an art collector. And they say, well, wait, well, you can't do that. Those aren't yours. And so the person replies, sure, they're mine. I've got them under my arm, right? They belong to me. And Piper says, what a fool. And isn't that how we often operate? We walk into a world where we are we come in empty-handed and we are going to leave empty-handed, right? And we take things off the wall and say, these are mine. And when we're asked, wait a second, those aren't yours, we say, yeah, they are. got them in my arms. We don't bring anything into the world and we can't take anything out. And so that means, secondly, under the servant's, we are only stewards of what we've been given, aren't we? We're only stewards. A steward is someone who has been entrusted with someone else's wealth, someone else's money, someone else's possessions, and charged with the responsibility of managing it for his owner's best interests. This uh, reminds me of the owner of Jackson Dawson, Sam Dawson's been here several times to, to preach. He would he would often remind us that that we we uh, are not as careful with someone else's money as we are with our own. In other words, it's easy to spend the company's money, right? It's easy to go out and get a lunch. Hey, everybody, you want to come in and we get a lunch together? But it's it's different when it's your own money, right? We we never spend uh, other people's money as carefully as we spend our own. And um, the point is, is that we are simply stewards. You know, when I, when I was entrusted at Jackson Dawson to care for the money of the company, it wasn't my money. Okay? I, I had to be careful with it, not because it was mine. I needed to do it according to the master's wishes, the, the owner's wishes. In the beginning... God didn't just create man. He also created him with a task that you are to 
rule over. That's what Evan was reading earlier. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the creeping things on the ground. We were to be stewards over His creation. It's only by God's grace that that we were given that responsibility. It's only by God's grace that we can accomplish it properly. This relationship that God established at the beginning was was designed for us to be able to be in a relationship with Him. If we want to know how to best use the Master's money, we have to have a relationship with Him so we know what kind of interest He has. So, if we're stewards over all the wealth that we've received, how does this change our view of our bank accounts? How does this change our view of our cars, our homes, or our other worldly possessions? Well, it shows us that, that they're not to be used for our sole selfish purposes, but for God's purposes. It should uh, cause us to be held accountable for how we use our Master's wealth. Right? Recognizing there's coming a day of accounting. We'll talk about that. That, that we have to be able to justify our use of our Master's wealth. Not just what we give to church, but but recognize it's not just what you give to church that belongs to God, right? All of it does. So how are you using all of your money, all of your possessions, all of your assets? And then it also helps us to see that getting wealth, wealthy isn't an end in itself. The, the goal in life, okay, opposed to what our American society would tell us, is not to get wealthy. That's not the goal in life. Okay, not not to get to a place or we're completely free. That's not the the goal. The goal is to be constantly underneath the leadership, the lordship of God as He wants to direct us in the use of our resources. Alright, any questions on that? God's the master. We're the servants. Alright, let's keep moving then. Uh, let's look at the stewardship of the resources that God has given us. First, we'll look at the poor stewardship of the third servant. The unfaithful servant, we could say. What did the unfaithful servant do that was lazy and wicked? In the parable in Matthew 25, what was it? He what? Okay, he buried the money. He hid it in the ground because he knew his master was was a hard man. He was he was a uh, a man that would reap where he sowed. And the consequence was that he would just be, you know, kind of lesser in the kingdom, right? Is that what it was? What was the consequence? Look at that in verse um, 30. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing. What is that talking about? Every time that's mentioned in the New Testament, it comes from, I think, from the lips of Jesus. But every time it's it's mentioned, it's talking about eternity and hell. Jesus is being serious about how we use His resources. But if you think about it, hell seems like quite a large consequence for somebody who's simply burying money. So what, what exactly is going on here? Let me try to describe it in a bit more detail to help. The faithful servants trusted that the master would return as he said. And so they risked 
Okay, they, they had a proper, a good risk in that they risked everything based on that promise that my master is going to come and he's going to demand an accounting. I'm going to risk everything for that purpose. He, I'm not going to hold anything back of the, of the resources that he's given. But the unfaithful servant decided to play it safe because he either thought that the master wasn't going to return as he promised or that when he did... He wouldn't demand that he was faithful with that resource. And so he actually played a risk mitigation strategy, right? He, he hedged his bet, so to speak. He buried the talent and did other things with his time other than working for the sake of the master. You see, the faithful servants trusted their master's word and they trusted his goodness. They said... He's coming back, just like he said, and he will be good in giving a proper in, in taking a proper accounting of what I have used. But the unfaithful servant had no faith in the master's return, and he thought that the master was a bad guy, right? That he was going to be exacting is the word that he used. And as Jesus says elsewhere, you cannot serve both God and money. You may think you can play both sides and please both masters, but in the end, your desire to do so shows that you have no faith in God. You're not a Christian. You try to serve both God and money. And so what we learn from the unfaithful servant is that what you do with your money is an indication of whether or not you have saving faith. Okay? It doesn't earn you a spot out of hell. Okay? If, you're, if you're good with your money... You're, you're not going to hell. That's not the point. The point is, is, do you believe in God's promises and do you believe that God is good, that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him, not an exactor of punishment on those who seek Him? All right, that's Hebrews 11.6. This parable is not about being good or mediocre. It's about the difference between heaven and hell. Are we going to trust God's promise? I'm going away. I'm coming back to take an accounting of what you've done with your money. With my money, I should say. That's what the Master says. And when I come back, I'll, I'll be good to you if you've risked that money for my sake. Alright, so that's the unfaithful servant or poor stewardship. Now, let's look at faithful stewardship, glorifying God spend the rest of our time doing this. In the parable, why was it that the first two servants were commended as good and faithful? What was it? They, they used the money as the master asked. Okay, So we could say simply they obeyed. What else? They think good of the master or bad of him? They trusted him. They obeyed immediately. Here's the other thing is sometimes we can delay, right? Like, well, we know the Master's coming back. We know that He's going to demand an accounting, but I'm not quite ready to do what God wants me to do with the resources that He's given, so I'll just wait a little bit longer. But see, the, the thing is, the, is the, the servants didn't know when the Master was going to return. So, so, they, so they not only obeyed, but they obeyed immediately. They thought well of their Master, they were productive and they took risks, okay? or they acted in faith. They're saying, my master has told me to do something. He told me to invest it, to use it properly. So I'm going to, to take a risk for the sake of my master. And in the end, they received profitable returns 
and they patiently waited for the master to return. So we see that being a faithful servant or a steward is using the wealth in a manner that God would have us. So let's think about um, the proper motivation for a faithful servant. Let me give you two. First, God didn't merely teach us to do uh, what to do with our wealth. He, he actually showed us what to do. And so the mark of one forgiven by Christ is love for God. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's trying to get a collection from the Corinthians to take to Jerusalem. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich. Paul wants them to know that Jesus humbled Himself as a suffering servant for their sake. He obeyed His Father perfectly, died on the cross, so that we could share in His inheritance. And so that wealth makes us wealthy. right? The the wealth of Christ makes us wealthy. And so our first motivation for faithfulness and stewardship is love for God or the love that we've received from God. Because of what Christ has done for us, we can be faithful stewards. We have become wealthy in Christ. That's why our church is constantly focused on the cross and what's happened with Jesus and how He's been raised from the dead. He has conquered death. We're we're constantly focused on that because that is the point at which we need to understand that that our motivation uh, comes from that. It, It comes from a proper understanding of what Christ has done for us. When we understand what we've been forgiven of, we can forgive others. When we understand what we've been given, we can give to others. 1 Peter 4.10, each one of us should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So, number one, the first motive for faithfulness um, with regard to the stewardship that we have is the love that we have from God or the love of Christ, we could say. Second is the guarantee of God's future judgment. The guarantee of God's future judgment. In the parable, the master returned to settle the accounts. And in the same way, our master is going to return to settle accounts with us as to how we've used his resources. And as Christians, we're forgiven for all of our sins and we will, we, we will receive eternal life We won't be thrown out into outer darkness. But, at the same time, even as Christians, we need to recognize that we are going to give an accounting for how we have used His resources. Listen to uh, 2 Corinthians 5.10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that's for Christians. That each one may receive what is due him for the things while in the body. And listen to this last phrase. Whether good or bad or evil. Whether good or bad we all are going to give an accounting for how we have lived our lives. So what we do on this earth still has implications, even as Christians, for our rewards that we'll receive in heaven or our lack thereof. Galatians 6, 7 says, A man reaps what he sows. So does that factor into your financial decisions? You're going to give an accounting for how you've used your resources. That should factor into your decisions financially. When 
do we expect that Christ will return? Well, he could come back today. He could come at any time, right? Same, same with these, these uh, servants. They didn't know. He could come at any time. So we need to be ready today. Okay, is it just buried in the ground for now? Will we use it later? We're delaying? Or are we already investing it for the sake of God's kingdom? So, faithful servants' motivations. Secondly, God sets the terms for how we use wealth. God doesn't only provide motivation uh, as owner of everything. He also sets the terms for how we are supposed to use His wealth. So, Proverbs is full of all kind of counsel on this. We're to be diligent, not lazy, wise, not foolish, humble, not proud, generous, not stingy, honest, not deceitful, righteous, not sinful. Okay, so we, so we have all these um, exhortations, examples that are given, particularly in Proverbs and throughout the rest of the Scripture, but that we're to seek counsel, practice self-denial, trust in God. Now, if we do all those things that Proverbs says, does that guarantee that we're going to get wealth? No, but they're generally true predictions. That is, if we're if we're struggling, could it be that, that we are not being faithful with the resources that we have with regard to our time? Maybe we're being foolish with our resources. Maybe we're being lazy, proud. Maybe we're being deceitful. Okay, so, so the Proverbs there are set for general patterns and they, they, they don't guarantee wealth, but we need to recognize that God is the one who regulates wealth, right? He's, he's the one who gives, He makes the poor and the wealthy. That's what it, we read earlier. And the ultimate purpose in all of this is that God would be glorified, right? 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Well, that's a nice motto to have, but um, we need to be specific, don't we? Because if we just say, well, I'm going to use my money for the glory of God, that doesn't really have a whole lot of meaning because it's almost turned into cliche. Yes, that is true. We should do that. It should commend the gospel and our love for God, but, but what does that mean? Well, it means thanking God for what we've received. When was the last time that you thanked God for your resources? When was the last time that you just specifically listed out the things that God has given to you? Right, you've received these from His hand. Maybe some of the things that, that, that we sometimes take for granted. So thanking God. It, it means giving back to God from the first fruits. Not waiting till you know, if I have some leftovers, then those are going to go to God. But giving to God from the first fruits, that's what they would have to do in the Old Testament. Right? They would take from the first and the best of their crops and give it to God. It was... What happens if the rest of the crop doesn't turn out well, right? They had to have that sort of view in mind. So the same thing is true with us. You know, what if I don't make something else next month? Well, we, we need to give God of the first fruits and expect Him to provide for us as we seek to be faithful to Him. We also glorify God by um, not finding um, satisfaction in our wealth alone. So not using it for our own pleasures primarily, but ultimately for God's pleasures. Again, it's not wrong to take pleasure in wealth. It's wrong to do that to the exclusion of God. Thirdly, God is glorified when we pursue profitable returns. Back to the parable, the faithful servants were productive with the wealth given them. They earned a profit. In the same way, God is also glorified when we 
pursue profitable returns. Okay, now, I'm talking more than just financially here. Okay? God's value system is different than ours, but if He's the master and He has the choice of how to use it, then we should be at least be aware of what He wants. And then secondly, we should be following what He wants. So let me get, leave you with three thoughts in this regard. How God is glorified when we pursue profitable returns. Number one, invest in real value today. Every time we spend money on something, there's always an opportunity cost associated with it. right? If we spend money on something, then we miss an opportunity to spend it on something else or to save it in a different way. That's opportunity cost. And so we have to do some kind of comparison shopping when it comes to what God takes most seriously. In other words, God puts different values on different things. And we need to determine what God values most. So going back to Proverbs, we see a lot of comparisons made to wealth. For example, we see that wisdom is more precious than rubies. The fear of God is more important than great wealth. Righteousness is more important than money. A good reputation is greater than great riches. Elsewhere, we see that our faith in God is more important than gold and that salvation is better than gaining the world. So, now don't think, okay, well, okay, so you're talking about how to use my money. Am I supposed to purchase salvation with my money? Well, I can't buy faith, hope, and love. That's not the point. But it certainly can be used to build those things up, right? That's what the widow understood in Mark 12 when she gave her two mites into the temple treasury. She gave all that she had to live on. She used her money to grow in faith. You think God was pleased with that? Jesus said He was pleased with that. That brings God, God glory. So when you lend to a friend in need, even though you don't know if you'll, you'll ever be paid back by that friend, then you're using your money to build faith and to set your priorities straight. When you, when you use your car to give someone a ride to church, you're using your money to help them to gain God's Word. See how there's kind of an, uh, a value placed on those things? You gave up something in order for someone else to, to, to grow in faith. That's a good thing. That's a good transaction. Secondly, focus on the future. Beyond our investing our money in real value today, God also calls us to think about the future. Proverbs says, Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches and they are gone, for they will surely sprout wings and fly off like an eagle. Right? Recognize that worldly wealth is fleeting. John Rockefeller was one of the wealthiest men who ever lived. And after he died, someone asked his accountant, how much money did he leave behind? Yeah. And the, 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 the reply was, all of it. Because you can't take it with you. And so if you're going to take one verse to meditate on today, Matthew 6. 19 through 21. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You kind of see this, this guy, the third servant, right, burying it in the ground. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Invest it. Use it for the sake of God's glory, knowing that the Master is going to return. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. It's been said that you can't take it with you, right? There's no... There's no U-Hauls behind the hearses, you know, picture that they have. You know, when you die, you don't take anything with you. But what would you do if you saw in the news 
that 10 days from today, the U.S. dollar was going to be abandoned and we were going to start using the euro, what would you do? 10 days from now, our country is going to start using the euro. What would you do with your U.S. currency? You hold on to it? No. You want to convert it into as much European currency as you can. And you do it now while you can get the best value. You, you would get rid of the thing that was going to lose value and invest it in what is going to maintain value, in this case, the euro. Well, Jesus has told us that that's going to happen. The currency that you have in your possession, okay, whether it be money or resources, education, whatever it is, all of that is going to be gone. And you're going to exchange it one day for eternal currency, so to speak. And so you have the opportunity now to use that re- the resources that you have and change it now for eternal currency. Right? Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. You can do it. You can't take it with you, but you can send some on ahead, can't you? Because you can use the resources that you have to gain eternal riches. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And then thirdly, maximize returns. We don't just want to earn some profitable returns on our wealth. God wants to ma- wants us to maximize them. Uh, Colossians 3, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And so our lives ought to be maximized by doing everything that we do with the bottom line in view of glorifying God. And He promises to bless those who trust Him by using their wealth for those purposes. So we're called to, to, to be unlike the unfaithful servant, put all of our eggs in one basket. You know, I, I'm really counting that the Master's either not going to return or He's going to be rough with me when He comes back. Instead, we're going to unbury that those resources and start using them for the sake of God's glory. And we'll find that God is, is faithful. Well, there's uh, a few implications. I'll, I'll try to cover these next time because I think they're important, but unfortunately we ran out of time for today. Anyone have any questions? Comments? Good, let's pray, and uh, we'll pick this study up next week. Lord, thank you for um, your ownership of all things. Thankful that that frees us to 
to um, not fear uh, whether we give to your work or not. We know that, that you own it all and, and um, you reign supreme. And so we pray that you would help us to submit ourselves to you by using all of our resources, both money and, and uh, other possessions, for your glory in Jesus' name.